Welcome and thank you for downloading another Impossible Podcast. My name's PG Bell. I'm Caleb Woodbridge. I'm Natasha Radford. I'm Annabelle. I'm Claire Fayers. And welcome to our roundtable discussion on the life and works of Diana Wynne-Jones, a woman who during her lifetime wrote more than 40 books, most of them uh, fantasy for children, a little bit of non-fantasy and some fantasy for adults as well. She was described by no less a person than Neil Gaiman as quite simply the best writer for children of her generation. Now, obviously, with a body of work that large and with a reputation (laughs) that stellar, we could do an entire series of podcasts. This, by necessity, I think is going to be something of a Reader's Digest. It's going to be a very quick guided tour um, of some of of her best bits. Um, I think it's safe to say that we're nearly all of us fans of her work here. But before we get stuck into that, those of you who are regular listeners will have heard uh, a new voice in the introductions there. Uh, we've got, we're joined by Natasha for the first time. Uh, thank you for joining us. Very you're nice very, to be here. You're very welcome indeed. We asked you along because you are a Diana Wynne Jones fan of some standing. Um, you've got a blog where you review her books as you go along. That's the plan. I'm attempting mm-hmm. to read everything she's written. It's come to a bit of a standstill at the moment, but I'm hoping this reignites my reading and uh, this comes under the umbrella of something called the dwj challenge is that that's what i've called it because i just i'm trying to keep track of everything i like keeping Mm. lists so (laughs) (laughs) that's it that's my list so so but the aim initially at least was to read all of her works within the space of a calendar year is that right i don't know if i said i was going to do it within a year because that would have passed by now Mm -hmm. but um it's just to try and read everything because even if you are just reading, if you are going to try and do it within a year, I think that's one book per week almost, isn't it? Yeah, that would be a bit impossible. That, that's an awful lot to cram in. But, uh, but no, welcome. It's good to have you with us. Um, I want to start out by asking everyone here what your first Diana Wynne-Jones book was. What was the first book of hers that you read? And uh, just as importantly, how old were you when you read it? Uh, Caleb, if we start with you. Well, the first one I clearly remember reading, I think it was my first, was Hexwood, which is uh, one which I have have here in my pile. Mm. We've got quite a few of them piled up. Yes, you, you, you can't see them. We, um, we might add a photo to the website, but we are surrounded by <laughs> Diana Wynne Jones books. Um, but it's a it's a book that combines um, science fiction with uh, elements of um, the Arthurian legends and has unstable realities in it Mm -hmm. and I first read it when I must have been around eight years old Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, without giving too much away there's uh, some uh, different parallel threads to the story uh, some of which are more uh, everyday and ordinary and then you have um, going off into Hexwood and then there's stuff taking place elsewhere and just understanding what's going on and how it all fits together it 
at first doesn't make a lot of sense or didn't to my eight-year-old self, but just the way it uh, came together and uh, some of the twists along the way uh, really blew my my mind at eight years old. And I think I read it uh, just at um, a time where it really made a massive impression on me and I really uh, loved it. I have reread it since then. It didn't quite have the same impact, but it I still have an awful lot of affection and I went on to read uh, most of her books. Like I don't think I've quite managed to read all of them, but uh, a good good proportion good of, of her output. So. Okay, score one for Hex with that. Uh, Natasha, how about you? My first was uh, The Magicians of Caprona, one of the Crestomazzi series. Uh, I think I was about 12, found it in the school library. I expect it was one of those books that I just sort of read in a matter of a day or two because just got completely engrossed in it. Um, sort of alternate universe, Italy, magic. And it's quite interesting. I've read a lot of the Crestomancy since then. I think I've read all of them and I've reread it recently. And it's interesting because even though it's a Crestomancy book, he's not in it that much. And you even spend a significant part of the book thinking maybe he's a villain because yeah. you don't know who he is. So it was... Um, interesting uh, sort of entrance into that series of books mm-hmm. excellent Anna uh, my first Diana Wynne Jones book I think I happened to stumble across it I think it was some kind of book club where they gave you a list of books and you sent off for one of them and mm. I sent off for this one randomly and it turned out to be a Tale of Time City um, um, yeah I think that was late primary school and I just remember it being I think the first kind of sci-fi fantasy book I'd ever read, so I just was kind of blown away by the sheer imagination of it and just the fact that there's all these kind of new and interesting concepts coming in that you don't really read in children's books very much. Um, And then I promptly forgot about Diana Wynne-Jones because I was at that age where authors didn't really matter so much as just the story in the books. So um, it wasn't till the film of Howl's Moving Castle came in that I joined the dots and realised that this author was also the author that whose book I really loved years ago. And so since then, I I think I might be close to fulfilling your challenge of all the Diana Wynne Jones in the <laughs> Yeah. Because I yeah. I think I've caught up with about half of them. You, I've been you, so you are at... outpacing me. <laughs> I, I, think, yeah. I think it was when I was in my um around 12, 13 uh, summer holidays, I uh, discovered A, that I could order books from the library catalogue for free, uh, and B, that it was easy to uh, find lots of ones that I wanted if I found an author I liked and found the rest of their books. Uh, so I think it was uh, that particular summer when I uh, realised, oh, this Diana Wynne Jones, I've read quite a few, enjoyed quite a few. Uh, there's loads of them in here, let's get them all. <laughs> so I gave my librarian a whole long list of uh, every Diana Wynne Jones book in the Gwyneth Library catalogue and ordered them and read, uh, read through it. I found being on maternity leave helped, partly because there's an awful lot of uh, where you can just have to sit around and not do anything apart from possibly even <laughs> watch TV. Um, and partly because I found myself, um, after having my son, a lot more sensitive to things. So Diana Wynne-Jones was a really kind of nice, engaging author that wasn't too harsh or glum because previously mm. I've been reading John le Carre and you really don't want to do that after just giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> What sort of world have I brought my child into? <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, no, it's interesting. You've, you've all three of you raised some some very interesting points um, that we will come back and revisit um, as as this podcast progresses. But before you uh, get that far, Claire, how about you? What was your first Diana Wynne Jones book? I'm thinking I might just pack up and go home now before the rest <laughs> of this group starts throwing things at me. <laughs> it was either Hexwood or Howl's Moving Castle, and it must have been in my thirties. I didn't read it at all as a child. Actually, I'm probably pretty much the same age as you all, so probably her books didn't exist when I was a child, actually, I don't know. Um, I know I read Hell's Moving Castle before the film came out, because I read it, thought, oh, that was quite nice, gave it to the charity shop, the film came out, and I thought, oh, I wish I hadn't given that away, and I had to go and buy another copy. And, yeah, I remember Hexwood as being interesting in ideas, didn't quite come together in my head properly, didn't blow my mind thankfully maybe I'm just too old to have my mind blown yeah. I, I, I think it was as much to do with me being eight years old and as anything else but, uh, it is yeah. You, you were telling me, Claire, before we started recording that uh, that you're probably going to be the voice of dissent uh, in this evening's <laughs> podcast. She, is it fair to say that Dynamite Jones yeah. hasn't quite clicked with you? I think so, which is odd because I think she is a very good writer. A lot of people whose opinions I respect a lot think she's absolutely mm. fantastic. I love some of the ideas she's got. If I read descriptions of her books, I think that sounds great, I'm going to get it. And then I plough through the first three or four chapters and grind to a halt. I don't know what it is with me. I I just don't click with her writing style, possibly. That's fair enough. We'll, we'll just love you a little less. <laughs> <laughs> um, for my part, um, I'm surprised, actually, that uh, so many of you discovered her as, as children, which perhaps shouldn't be surprising, given that she's a children's author predominantly. Um, but this is a point that, that they'll come back to in a moment. I read Howl's Moving Castle. It must have been within a year of its publication, but it became one of those books, that, you know, the, the myriad books that you read as, as a child, and you remember snatches of it, and you're left with a certain impression or a particular scene that stands out, and you can't necessarily remember what book it came from or anything yeah. else of the story. All I had in my head was an image of an old woman standing inside the door of a castle as it moves along and she's being chased by a scarecrow that's trying to make its way into the castle. I had no idea what book it was from. I couldn't remember any of the rest of the story um, and I'd more or less forgotten it until um, I went to see the Miyazaki animated movie. Uh, in fact, with, with, with Anna and Claire, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and there was that scene up on the screen and I suddenly realised... I, I, I've read this. I know what this is. Um, I couldn't, everything else was, was completely new to me. I'd forgotten everything else about it. But I, I had read Howl's Moving Castle uh, when I was eight or nine, I think. Uh, but I didn't pick up another Diana Wynne Jones book uh, then until after having seen uh, the Miyazaki movie. And my first my first real experience of Diana Wynne Jones was The Homeward Bounders, which was only what, two years ago, so I was late 20s. So around about the same age as Claire then when uh, when when you picked up your first time on Jones. Um I absolutely loved the Home of Bangers. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Mm, it's a good one. And uh I've been sort of chasing Anna through the back catalogue uh, ever since and uh I I've been working my way through steadily. But but technically my first was Howl's Moving Castle, but really I think it was the Home of Bounders, which which is a, a very good place to start. Mm. Mm. Uh but the reason I I said I was surprised that uh uh, so many of you came to her as children is that really she only found widespread appeal um, in the wake of the Harry Potter phenomenon 
uh, when children's fantasy became very big business indeed. Uh, she'd been publishing quite consistently for 30 years, of course, um, and had built up quite a, a small but a very loyal readership, mm. uh, of, of which it seems that you were all a part. <laughs> um, but, and of course, an awful lot of her books had gone out of print, um, and only really the, her, her most current and up-to-date ones were still uh, freely available. It was, it was only once uh, the publishing houses went looking for children's fantasy in the wake of, of Harry Potter taking off, that they found they had you know, 25, 30 years of Diana Wynne Jones's back catalogue mm. sitting there gathering dust, really, and then they were all republished, and they, they really, really took off. And, of course, the children who'd originally read them when they were published were, by this time, uh, the eldest of them were parents themselves, so they remembered the stories and bought them for their children. That's where she got her, her, her widespread appeal. You were obviously the target audience, and she found you, or you found her, um, and that's that's quite rare. I, I, I think um, she has, for a long time, been well regarded by people in the know about children's literature, hmm. sort of uh, people who take an interest, librarians and adults with a professional interest and so on, but has never been a household name. And I, I've wondered about this because she, uh, a lot of her books, I mean, the Crestomancy books, for example, are quite similar in style, especially to the early Harry Potter books. There's mm. that combination of humour and magic. Uh, and in many ways, I'd put her um, on a par with J.K. Rowling uh, as as an author, writing at a similar level, similar style. But I don't know. I, 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 it, it puzzles me why Harry Potter was such a massive success and Diana Wynne Jones wasn't. I love the Harry Potter books, but it always seems that their success just was disproportionate to... Um, Canny marketing. <laughs> it, well, yes, the, the, that's an interesting point because, of course, the first two Harry Potter books did fairly well, mm. but didn't necessarily do any better than your average Daniel and Jones book. And I think it was only by the time Prisoner of Azkaban, book three in the series, came out yeah. that the juggernaut had started to gather a bit of pace. And I think it was the sales in America. Mm. Uh, when the books were put up for auction there. And I think, I think as well, it had a lot to do with adults discovering it. Because the mm. first I think I heard of Harry Potter was the fact that they brought out, you know, these new covers, the fact that so many adults were reading it oh, and were a bit embarrassed the, about the fact the, that... The, they, the adult covers. For, yeah. Yes, yeah. But, but no, you, you're quite right. It was specifically um, a marketing ploy to push these books, and we've seen it sort of more recently with Fifty Shades of Grey, but to, to push these books as mass market consumable literature. Which hadn't really been done with children's fantasy mm. previously. Now I'm not sure what sparked it, but uh, I, th- I think ev- everyone more or less has benefited mm. to some extent mm. since. Now, apparently, she, uh, Diana Wynne Jones, had a very low opinion of Joanne Rowling herself and felt that, let's say, certain elements of the Harry Potter books bore a little too close a resemblance <laughs> to some of the stuff she had written previously. But. I, I, we, we have no scientific evidence to back that up, shall we say? Yeah, I think. Just in uh, case Joanne Rowling's lawyers are listening. I, uh, from the interviews I read, I think Diana uh, Jones was fairly diplomatically silent, just said, hmm, it's funny uh, some of those similarities, uh, and moved swiftly on and changed the subject whenever it was brought yes, up. Yeah, it's definitely. funny, actually, because I, I, I don't think. You know, besides the subject matter, I don't think Harry Potter and Dino and Jones's books are that similar. Um, they're they're very different. A, a friend of ours described it once: Harry Potter as being actually more of 
a resurrection of the Enid Blyton mm. um, boarding school mm. dramas with added magic yeah. than, than kind of yeah. more Even of the, the fantasy. More like the worst witch. Yeah. Sort of yeah. yeah, so witches. that's a very good point. I actually. think they're a lot more similar in that way, to be mm. honest. Mm. Mm. Um, the one, the author I find her most similar to actually is Eva Ibbotson, who was oh, um, yeah. a contemporary of hers, um, but also had that kind of same style of writing. Mm. Um, Eva Ibbotson is another kind of overlooked children's writer in a lot of ways, although a lot of children's writers do reference her um, as a kind of inspiration. Yeah. Um, but she was around a similar age, and she died around the same time as well. Um, originally Austrian and an immigrant, but she wrote an awful lot of stories about uh, ghosts and ghouls, and she had a very similar mm. kind of witty writing style. and the kind of a, I don't think she had the same breadth of imagination as Diana Wynne-Jones, because Diana Wynne-Jones covered every kind of mm. possible mm. area of the, the, the kind yeah. of fantasy sci-fi spectrum. But um, I think she added this wicked turn of phrase, though. Um, I've got an example here of Eva Ibbotson's writing about the... Uh, the headmaster and headmistress of the school and it said Mr Crawler the headmaster was small and pale and weedy and seemed to get smaller and paler and weedier with every week that passed Mrs Crawler on the other hand got steadily fatter louder and pinker looking the boys used to wonder whether she chewed bits off her husband while he slept (laughs) and that kind of it seems like something that could come out of a a simpler book from Mm. Diana Wynne-Jones I think another way in which Diana Wynne Jones is quite different from J.K. Rowling in her writing style is that uh, the Harry Potter books are quite meticulously plotted, uh, whereas the Diana Wynne Jones books seem to be an explosion of ideas and characters, which she then uh, kind of brings together at the end, but sometimes with varying degrees of um, (laughs) satisfactoriness. Mm. Uh, Hang on until the last. Two yeah. or three chapters, and then suddenly it all makes sense. <laughs> yes, yes, she does. She does occasionally not write herself into a corner, but does leave herself with about two pages in which to wrap everything. <laughs> yeah. I find that the most with them. Um, oh, which one was it? Conrad's fate. I've just read that. I find the same thing. It's just <laughs> half of it's like a, a period drama, <laughs> all about the life below stairs for servants. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit Denton how is she going to wrap all of this up in the next ten pages? <laughs> House of Many Ways, which is the third of the Howl's Moving Castle trilogy, every single plot thread is resolved in the space of a page and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one striking similarity to J.K. Rowling, uh, albeit unintentionally, I think, that one criticism that has been levelled at the later Harry Potter books, and uh, but specifically her new um, adult murder mystery, The Casual Vacancy, is that uh, they're badly in need of an edit. And I think the, the theory goes that Joanne Rowling has become such a big name and such a big force in publishing that no one dares to edit her, yeah. basically. And her, manus- and her manuscripts mm. tend to be a bit flabby um, and don't go through the same judicious pruning that uh, perhaps yeah. other, other, other books would. Now, and at this point, I'll just plug a very interesting interview that uh, the MuggleNet Academia podcast did uh, with um, someone who is on the editorial team on the Harry Potter books for Scholastic in America. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, 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 she kind of denies that and she sort of says, well, um, a lot of us were Harry Potter fans and we wanted more information, not less type thing, which mm. I think is... 
So um, the editors just chose not to do their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can under, understand the argument for have, having as much as possible. The fans wanted as much of that world as they could get, but I do think they could have still done with a bit of a, a trim. <laughs> uh, one surprising fact about Danawyn Jones that, that shocked me, frankly, is that she refused point blank to be edited at all. Uh, she edited herself uh, quite judiciously. She would only do two drafts of each book um, and would occasionally add a final sort of layer of polish, a sort of second uh, draft 2.5. Uh, but once that was done, she would send the book in and if anyone dared to send her back any notes or suggest any changes, she would uh, remonstrate quite frankly with them, <laughs> really. Um, and, and she says in, in her book Reflections, which is in, effectively her last book and his uh, collection of essays and, um, and papers that she gave on on her life and on writing mm. in general and her her own writing specifically um, she says that she did not she would not hand in a manuscript that she felt was any less than anything less than perfect um, and so if anybody thought that it needed any changes they were clearly wrong <laughs> <laughs> and so that was it and she, she she edited herself so I, I it's remarkable because normally I would assume that Refusal to be edited would be the death of good writing. Well, apparently J.K. Rowling um, would deliver delivered the Harry Potter books in quite a finished state. Mm. Um, uh, she did well, a lot. as as you'd, you'd hope any writer yeah, would, really. But um, compared to uh, some writers, I think they did do relatively little editing on it, but partly because. J.K. Rowling had the same spirit of "I'm going to deliver the the book in in the form I want it to." But that's a bit different from refusing for anyone else to have a say in (laughs) how your book looks. Stephen King in the sort of mid '80s very famously went to his publisher and said, "Please start editing me again," (laughs) (laughs) because he realised that uh, that what he handed in was basically what was published, um, and it wasn't doing him any favour. Claire, you you didn't get on with the fiction, but you've also read some. The reflections, and you're a children's writer. We should explain Mm. that Claire Claire, um, writes her own children's fiction. uh, Um, Would we say children's or young adults? um, Currently, working on young adults. Mm. My current book I'm working on, I haven't had a book published. I've had a lot of stories and serials published in magazines. I cannot imagine not letting anybody edit it. Mm. Basically, once they wrote me a check, <laughs> they could do what they liked with the thing. So if you if want to put got, space monkeys in there, I'll put space yeah, monkeys in like, there. Is only, there is one serial that I sent in that they wanted to cut into a single episode, which actually meant cutting the thing by half. And I said, well, do you mind if I do it, if you're going to do that much work on it? Mm. And that was fine. And they probably edited it again after that. I didn't actually read it. <laughs> that was, that, that was all. But that's the only time I actually asked to do my own editing. Apart from that, once it was in, if they were happy to pay me for it, I really didn't care mm. what happened after. So, yeah, I don't understand a writer who doesn't want to be edited. Um, I, I think she's a woman who knew her own mind. <laughs> uh, but but my, my respect for Diana Wynne Jones, which was already fairly high, I just leapt by the stratospheric heights after I read that. I um, think you've got to be very sure of your writing. You, you've got to be a master of your own craft, I think, mm-hmm. to, 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 not let to anybody end else up with a series. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I haven't read... Well, we'll come to this later. Uh, I have read a book first that I really didn't like. <laughs> um, but 
everything else that I've I've read of hers has been absolutely except, exceptional, and t- to think that that's without any editorial input at all um, is is incredible. Uh, we've deviated somewhat from from the path that I. I <laughs> Carefully put down in our notes. I, I didn't. I didn't want to open Dino and Jones podcast by talking about J.K. Rowling. Uh, elephant in the room, though it was, that we were going bound to get yeah. to it eventually. But I, th- I think the best place for us to start with is to look at Howl's Moving Castle, simply because that's probably the best known of her books, thanks in large part to the the Miyazaki movie uh, that came out in two thousand and four, but also because it does contain an awful lot of elements that um, can be extrapolated and applied to other bits of her writing and her own life. And I, I think it, we could use it as a handy jumping-off point mm. to look at other areas of her writing. Have we, have we all read Howl's Moving Castle? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, we have. Anyone have any sort of off-the-cuff opinions, first of all, um, about what is, by and large, the seminal Diana Wynne Jones book? I liked it more than her other one. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way she plays with fairy tale conventions in it and turned some of them upside down and I was rather disappointed in the film when they undid some of that no. and put it back the way that they thought it should be but the, the playing with ideas was nice mm. oh, You mean like the uh, the evil stepmother not being evil but then being evil again but then not being evil <laughs> Yes and the and the daughters all thinking that they've got to go according to type because if you're the first daughter you must be this type of thing and yeah. so and linking that into reflections, which she talks about her childhood a lot. Mm. It was that comes out an awful lot with parents who had particular expectations of children. And from mm. what she says in her books, it seems that Diana and Jones was left a large part to raise her sisters we, because the parents we, we, had lives and didn't want yeah. to have them interrupted we, by children. We, we, we will come to Diana and Jones's mm. childhood because that's such a big subject. Mm. I'd like to sort of mm. almost leave that as a section in itself. Right. Um, but no, you're, you're quite right. There is an awful lot of her, of her own life in that. Um, but I, again, you've raised a very good point in that I think House Moving Castle is, particularly in its opening chapters, a very deliberate deconstruction of uh, conventions of fairy tales mm. and fantasy, really, isn't it? If you, It's got all of the tropes in there. It's got demons it's got as you said the, the the family setup it's got the ordinary girl in a humdrum job who is uh, has, has to go on a quest almost to find an enchanter it's got things like the seven league boots it's got doorways to other worlds but it, it, it's a mashup really isn't it almost a, a best of selection of uh, mm-hmm. of folklore and fairy tales and I think that's one of the things that's fun about her is that sense of self-awareness of um, uh, the fantasy genre. She wrote The Tough Guide to Fantasyland, mm, which is yes. a very funny spoof tourist guide. That's, it's effectively a satire, isn't yeah. it, of, uh, of the sort of sub-Tolkien mm. fantasy genre. And also um, The Dark Lords of Dirt Cole, mm. which, uh, again, it's... Uh, basically, you've got package holidays from our world to this magical world where the local inhabitants are uh, made to dress up and act out the parts of a stereotypical subtalking fantasy. So yes. um, the dirt gets landed with the job of being uh, the Dark Lord for that holiday season. I kept calling him Derek. <laughs> like, I, bit, I gave up after about four chapters because I just didn't buy the concept, but really? I called him Derek. Oh. Oh, no, 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 I, I, I absolutely <laughs> loved Why? Dark Lord of Dirk. It was just so good. It was 
because it is just this inversion of every cliched, hackneyed, lazy Lord of the Rings wannabe fantasy that you've ever read in your life. <laughs> All of the point fantasy that I read as a as a as a teenager, <laughs> it's it's in there. It's fantastic, and it but it's. It's it's not even just turned on its head. It's turned on its head and inside out, and then spun around, kicked up a cliff. It's wonderful. It it's it turns what should be an epic quest into admin. <laughs> it's it, this this fantasy realm that you know that everyone dreams of in our world, and that isn't that is a reality in the book. Um, they're off you know, busily trying to arrange these epic battles. You know these Peter Jackson esque. Sweeping conflicts between good and evil, and they're off trying to. And there really are, you know, sort of riders of Rohan type um, warriors, and there's an empire of the south, and there are dragons, and there are griffins, and they're all just desperately trying to plan these spreadsheets. (laughs) And it's stressful, and it's really quite tense, but not in the way you'd expect. It's a question of anyone who's actually done. A desk job or any kind of administration, <laughs> it, they are just trying to balance the books and trying to f- figure out how they can get twelve people from one side of the country to the other in a specific time to do a specific number of jobs. It's it's great and, fun, and, and it's also it's also very clever because as well as being a uh, a, fun, a very funny fantasy uh, spoof, mm. it's got um, a serious satirical point it's, to it's, to make yeah. um, about. Um, just the impact of tourism on local cultures and stuff mm. like that, and it it does so in a way that's still funny mm. and that isn't worthy or pretentious at all. But uh, actually, it, there is some real bite to the satire as well. It, it is officially categorised as one of her adult fantasies, mm. as as is Year of the Griffin, the sequel, um, and it's certainly got some of her darker moments. I mean, there, there's there, there's a rape. Um, which takes place, which is never actually... Nothing is made specific, but you're left in absolutely no doubt as to what has happened. And there is no particular light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. Yeah, the, the character is raped and stays raped, and that's it. You, it's not lingered on, it's not it's, it's not made a focus of, of the and, narrative. And there's but, the casual way in which one of the characters is marked as expendable. Mm. Yes. Uh, yeah. Certain tourists who come through from our world, um, rather than have a contract killer take them out, you, you, you just... Send them on you, holiday and take it, the insurance money. You, you, <laughs> you, slip, you slip the travel agent an extra 20 quid and say, if he doesn't come back, no one's going to worry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And so, yeah, they, they, they meet an orc or a dragon or something on the, on the course of the tour, and it just adds that bit of realism for the other tourists who, are, who have paid yeah, their insurance and are going to come back safely. Mm. But uh, coming back to Hal's moving mm. castle, yes, yeah. there is that <laughs> sense of playfulness and mm. um, awareness, and uh, sometimes with a more serious edge, as in uh, that, but in Hal's moving castle, mostly with... Uh, just very playfully and uh, entertainingly. I mean, I, I really enjoyed Howl's Moving Castle. I was one of the people who actually came to it after the film, yeah. so I watched the film and then read the book. Um, and I was impressed, actually, that how different the two were. How they they yeah. basically took Howl's Moving Castle and Japan... Japan Japanese, Japanese. Yeah. 
I, it's I, not like they took all the Welshness out of it. I much prefer the book. I find the film is just sort of lacking in the sort of warmth and. I was very happy to have the Welshness taken out because I really didn't like those scenes in the book. It just felt very jarring. Most of it's Japanese, and then you've got Billy Crystal, who's in a completely different film. If you watch the English language version, yes. Yeah, I was quite disappointed not to have Sospanfach. Uh, traditional Welsh uh, song, the saucepan mm. song, in a Japanese film. That would have been the most amazing <laughs> thing ever. Apparently. Suit being a Welsh rugby track suit mm. and that sort of thing. <laughs> yes, and Howl's Moving Castle, for those of you who haven't read it, um, in the book, um, Howl's House has a doorway. Um, and there's a dial above the doorway that, uh, and as you change it, the door leads to different locations. Uh, one of the lo- one of the locations is the moving castle. The other is a, a house in a fishing village on the coast. Um, and the other, uh, the, the doorway, which is basically a void into nothingness. If you step through the void, you end up in the Welsh valleys. <laughs> um, you step from one universe in, in, in two hours, which is where um, Howl comes from originally. Uh, obviously, this is absent in the film, um, but. Danwyn Jones, again, in an interview, does tell the story of the Studio Ghibli animators and executives, and I think uh, Miyazaki himself, who came over to visit her, um, to talk to her when the film was still in the preparatory stages. Uh, And one of the reasons they wanted to come over was to see Wales and get a sense of the background and just the geography and the character of the place and see if they could infuse any of that into into the film and she, and she asked them right, well where are you going what are you going to look at and they said oh well we're just going to go and look at Cardiff um, well that's not good and, and, and Dan apparently went well, well really no 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 Cardiff's got absolutely nothing to do with the book at all I mean, there are no specific places that you need to see but if you want to look at some bits, some bits and pieces of, of of the Welsh countryside. Go, go, go to. You know, she gave them a list of various places in the valleys and mid Wales. They went, oh right, well that's very interesting. We haven't heard any of these places. We think we'll just go to Cardiff anyway. <laughs> and apparently they did. They went and they, they made an artistic study of Cardiff and they looked at its at its geography and its architecture. Uh, and of course, none of this is apparent in the film. So well, I could, I'd like to see the Miyazaki version of Chippy Alley. <laughs> I, I, I do like to think that they arrived on St Mary Street on a Friday night <laughs> when it looked like an absolute war zone. <laughs> hmm, well, Miyazaki's... <laughs> we can put a war in this film. Yes, they yes we can put a war and all the soldiers yeah. will be teenagers dressed as prostitutes <laughs> and they'll all be blind drunk <laughs> and instead of shooting each other they'll just vomit copiously okay. let's edit that video <laughs> yes if you haven't seen Cardiff on a Friday night don't don't yes <laughs> yes you're really not missing much um, but but no they did come over and I'm, I'm convinced if you look at the moving castle in the Miyazaki movie are there, are there not elements of the Welsh dragon in that? The four feet that it moves on are, are the feet of the Welsh dragon, and it has the red wings sprouting out of the side. I'm quite convinced that's taken from the Welsh flag. I'll have to look at it again. Let me just Google a picture of what we've already talked about this, but I'm absolutely sure that uh, there You're are elements of the Welsh determined that someone must agree with you somewhere. <laughs> the Welsh background of Howell is very, very important to... To the book, would we say it, it's the book with the most readily apparent Welsh connections? Or I haven't seen anything Welsh in any of the others that I've read. There's quite a lot of Bristol in. Archer's Goon contains an awful lot of Bristol. 
I'm wondering about Power of Three, but I can't remember. I mean, that's just, that's very countryside, so it could be anywhere. I don't think there's any specific places named. I suppose as well, um, one of the more autobiographical ones was The Time of the Witch. Not in terms of, you know, that's how she spent her childhood, but the, the three sisters in there, because she was one of three sisters. And she describes in one of them kind of how one of her sisters was hoisted up to be dramatic and to pirouette on a rope and they didn't realise till oh, she did yes. passed out she so she was actually suffocating yes. and that incident is actually replicated in the time of the ghost um, and that takes place in the countryside so it's, it's possibly yeah. but then she grew up in that um, school and conference centre as well which is very yes um, based in the countryside Interesting. yeah <laughs> the, the Merlin conspiracy has a fair bit of Wales, Welsh in it. Although it's, it's sort of an alternate universe. It's not um, Great Britain, it's the Isles of Blessed. Uh-huh. Okay. And one of the characters, her name is, well, her short name is Roddy, I can't remember. It's, yeah, her grandfather's Welsh. She's like a Welsh death spirit. I can't remember his name. <laughs> yes, possibly. That's one of the ones I don't remember so well. I have read it, but um, I think only the once. I've I've read it, but I've mostly listened to There's an audiobook version of it, read by David Tennant and Amelia Fox. (laughs) 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 They take it in turns to read chapters narrated by the female character and male character, and it involves a variety of Welsh accents and (laughs) David Tennant speaking like a plummy Scottish ant elephant. It's quite crazy (laughs) in places, but yeah. Sorry, brief diversion. That's the best photo I could find. Is that not the wings of the Welsh dragon? And you can't see the feet particularly well in that picture. Are you going to make a stick that's on the podcast site so that all the <laughs> listeners can agree with you? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's I, I, I can sort of see if what you you're guessing. Sort of at. close your eyes and stand in your head and I, drink another glass yeah. of wine, then. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I can maybe. Everyone drink another glass of wine. <laughs> I can maybe concede the feet. The feet are the quite. The feet, yeah. I'm not sure. I, can't. I, I, thought, I can I thought, see I thought, the fans at the I back. Can't I can't see yeah, I thought the wings. wings. I thought the wings were more. Are they wings? The, yeah, they're wings. Where? The, the fan that's, bits. That's the. Being like the. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. I thought that was like some sort of steampunk machinery device well, to make it go faster. No. It, it does use them to fly at the end of the, at the, at the it, end of the film. I mean, uh, one of the things about that is that it is kind of the reverse of the TARDIS in that it's smaller on the inside than yeah, the Yeah, I quite like that. Mm. It, this, this, it's quite an imposing castle. It, it's, it's quite dark and gothic in the book, isn't it? It's mm. tall, black smoking chimneys um, and of course when you step inside it's just a fairly homely cottage <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, four rooms nothing else at all yeah A Tale of Time City is probably the one that's most Doctor Who-ish just to get in yeah. an obligatory Doctor Who connection oh, yeah. so you travel through time yeah now, A Tale of Time City is the one Diana Wynne Jones book that I simply could not get on with I yeah. desperately tried to like it and I really couldn't I just found it didn't quite I imagine it must be what what, what Claire gets with every, every time I'm doing it. But it just didn't click. I, I, the the central character I couldn't click with. I felt we weren't given enough sense of who she was or you know, she didn't seem fully invested in what was going on. The, the Time City itself was an interesting concept. But, uh, but no, See, yeah, I can't I, get on with it at all. I think I read it around the time that I was Vivian's age, the main character in the book, and mm. I didn't have a problem with that at all. Mm, okay. I mm. found her quite um, sympathetic. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely one of the ones I read as a child. Mm. I mean, going on to books that we didn't get on with so much, the one for me would probably be um, Dog's Body, 
actually, which it was mostly just because I couldn't, um, I didn't find it credible that stars could have their own lives and social kind of spheres. I couldn't get past that. The bits that I absolutely loved the bits where he was a dog and I thought mm. that was absolutely fantastically written. And I read it easily and I enjoyed yeah. it. I just couldn't quite believe that yeah. that stars could act like that. <laughs> I, I don't think I liked that one as much. I think that was one of her very early yeah, yeah, ones. Right. I, I wouldn't uh, put it on the par as most of her. Mm. But the relationship between the girl and the dog, Mm -hmm. I thought, was was absolutely fantastic. I I think that one's also probably one that stated the most, Mm -hmm. because some of the contemporary references to the IRA and the troubles, some of her others are a bit more timeless. Dog's Body, by the way, is a story about um, Sirius or the dog star getting accused of of murdering some another star um, and then being sent as punishment to Earth to live in the body of a dog. Um, which, yeah, sounds ridiculous. She writes it really, really well, but I couldn't get past that central Shades concept. That... Shades of Sirius Black. <laughs> <laughs> Who else has a, a least favourite book? Besides all of them, Claire. <laughs> uh, I've never really got on that well with The Time of the Witch. I think I've read it a few times and it just hasn't clicked for me, I guess. Maybe I overthink things and stuff but no that one's never quite done it for me it is a, a slow moving book mm. isn't it there's there's an awful lot it's like uh comrade's fate they take a long time getting to the point yeah. there's an awful lot of her reminiscing about her childhood via fiction i think in there <laughs> caleb any, any least favorites for you yeah i think dog's body is one that i wasn't so keen on and Time of the Witch. Also, I'd add to that Deep Secret, one of her um, adult ones. I didn't quite get on it as well, if that's one that's... It's got its moments. Uh, You've got a lot of it set at a science fiction convention and perhaps a lightly fictionalised version of Neil Gaiman (laughs) is one of the characters. (laughs) Um, So there's some quite fun stuff if you're familiar with fan culture. But... I think trying to be more adult, it doesn't quite work. And I think she is stronger as a children's young adult writer generally than when she um, tries to do more uh, explicitly adult. Uh, I'd be quite interested to read. I haven't read any of her adult stuff yet. But I'd be quite interested you, you, you've to read see the Dirk on books, so officially adult. Although the, I don't think she wrote... Did she write them with those with that in mind? I, I, I think so, but having said that, I, I was quite struck by just how accessible to children mm. they are. I mean, they, they are, I think, an emotional level above an awful lot of what she does in terms of the concerns of the characters. They think they're more adult-orientated. But having said that, I think any self-respecting sort of 10 to 12-year-old who read some of her other stuff and enjoyed mm. them could probably plough into Dark Lord of Durkholm and manage fairly well, mm. uh, and especially with Year of the Griffin. Yeah. Which, if if which... children can read Pratchett, then they can see Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, if you can read Terry Pratchett, you can read those two. So. Mm. I was reading Terry Pratchett at 10. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> going back, um, it was quite... Funny then, just realising how much um, uh, went, went over my head, especially uh, Masquerade is one I remember reading the first time. And there was just um, 
basically all the innuendo around <laughs> Nanny Hog. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I don't remember all of this from when I, when I was Poor 10. young little child. <laughs> <laughs> we took the first two books on honeymoon with us and came back, I think, with the first six. <laughs> <laughs> And we got all in you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my my first Terry Pratchett book was um, uh, Reaper Man, which is the weirdest one to start it's, with because yeah. it's, it's got the most far out ideas. Yeah, but I fell in love with it within the first paragraph where he said something along the lines of. Um, more starting from the view of people whose uh, closest call with nature is that their Volvo once hit a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But getting back to Diana's... Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the podcast. <laughs> um, no, I, I would like to talk a bit about her use of magic. I mean, we've talked about um, subverting or reappropriating some, some of the conventions of, uh, of traditional fantasy mm. and folklore. It, it strikes me that uh, Darwin Jones had a particular take on using magic, and it varied a little bit from series to series and from book to book. But she seems to have quite, almost a down-to-earth, quite pragmatic view of the way in which some of the more fantastical elements of, of her books works. I mean, again, look, using Howl's Moving Castle as an example, it's it's quite no nonsense. She pursues every single bit of magic to its logical conclusion. Like I'll, I'll use the Seven League Boots as an example. I mean, they are a staple of traditional, sort of particularly um, European folk tales. If you put your feet in these magic Seven League Boots, every step you take, you cover seven leagues um so she takes that one step further one step further no pun intended and says well, <laughs> what happens if you trip or stumble or take a half step do you do you travel three and a half leagues and mm. um, so of course you've got this wonderful scene with sophie strapping on these enormous great bucket like boots and trying to basically pick her way across the countryside and she's moving at such speed and is crossing these mountains and these rivers and she can't get her footing properly when she lands and so she'll slip she'll trip she'll shuffle and she finds herself zipping about all over the place um but i, I think that's just indicative of uh Diane jones's approach to magic she will sort of grab it by the scruff of the neck um and yeah she will pursue it to it to its absolute logical conclusion i think um, that's part of her appeal as a children's author the fact that she she really lives within her her characters and that her use of magic is very much like a, a child pursuing it to its logical conclusion because mm. children have rules and you, you know you set any children out to play a game that they've made up of their own devising and the first thing they will do is set out the rules and mm. it seems to be they come to a consensus like well no it's not fair to do that or you can't do that or that is cheating and it kind of it seems to mirror that that she has a very intuitive feel for well this is what you're allowed to do in magic and this is just cheating mm. <laughs> Yes, there aren't, at least I haven't come across any cases of what I've started calling sonic screwdriver syndrome. <laughs> like, like you just wave a magic wand and the problem magically resolves or no one just turns up, spouts a bit of Latin or you know, recites some sort of spell and all the enemies sort of spontaneously combust. Everything is quite logically worked out, isn't mm. it? Well, she does have a tendency for people to turn up on the last but one page and say, oh yes, now I remember, I'd lost my memory, but also the book, I was really <laughs> this person, and that really annoys me. <laughs> that, that's, that's mostly the Howl trilogy that yeah. she does. Yeah, that. well, it annoys me in the Howl trilogy. <laughs> Specifically Castle in the Air, which is the second book in the Howl's mm. Moving Castle trilogy. You um, come to expect that everyone is someone else in disguise. <laughs> it's, it's almost... It's, 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 it's 
like French farce meets Shakespeare in <laughs> that everyone is disguised as someone else. And they usually end up getting paired off and in couples at the end. Yes, yes. But I, I kind of had the impression that she had fun with that as yeah. well. Oh, absolutely. Because she, you know... She starts revealing it by two chapters in. It's like, well, of course Sophie was a something or other. (laughs) None none of it's contrived, is it? None none of it's pulled out of a hat uh, on the last page. It is all. It has all been worked through, even mm. though you don't necessarily see it coming. And you know, I don't know. Your your umbrella was actually a major character <laughs> <laughs> all along. Um, but the umbrella will have been there from page two. Yeah. Mm. And of course, you'll go back and read page two again when having got to the end. You'll see. Ah, yeah, no, absolutely. That was that was the mm. right place to put it. But I think um, it's, it's yeah. castle in the air, where you know that. <laughs> Every character you come across is going to turn out to be someone else. But I think she knows that as well. (laughs) I I preferred Castle in the Air to Howl's Moving Castle. I liked Howl's Moving Castle. I think Castle in the Air is one of her best, or at least one of the the best that I've read. I think it's one of the most that's... Um, most pure, just fun. Mm. <laughs> yes, um, but perhaps surprising that it came so long after Howl's Moving Castle. I mean, um, the first book in the series came out in 1986, and um, well, Castle Year 1990, so perhaps not that long. But she'd go off and do a couple of other things in between. The third book in the series, House of Many Ways, didn't come out until 2008, which is an incredibly long time to wait. This is one of the things I, I really like about her in that she's written quite a lot of different series and she's consistent within them all because the series of Howl's Moving Castle is very different to the series of Carton Quidder, which again was written mm. quite a few years, with quite a few yeah, years gapped in between. Yeah, that's the quartet. The Delmark quartet, yeah. Delmark quartet, yeah. But she still keeps a consistency and an internal kind of logic to them all mm. and the same tone as well to kind of mm. within the different series. Mm. So to be writing all these different series kind of parallel to one another really yeah. kind yeah. of marks yeah. her out. Eight, 18 years between Castle in the Air and House of Many Ways <laughs> mm-hmm. and they could have been written mm. one year apart. It's and, quite incredible. And the Delmark Quartet is an example of her writing much more straightforward fantasy uh, secondary world story. So it's uh, it's more of the traditional fantasy, less with her tongue in cheek, but she still does some interesting stuff with yeah. that. But it's like you compare that to other writers who don't keep the same consistency within their own series. Mm. Um, like I like Harry Potter, but then I suppose that's partly deliberate because she was trying to grow Harry up with the, the reader. Mm. Um, but also with Philip Rees' books, of which I really loved the first two, and then I found the tone shifted with the, the two sequels that he wrote. So this would be the Mortal Engine mm. series, that you had a very different tone for the, the first couple of books, and then it got an awful lot different for the, for the second mm. two. It got a lot younger, basically. I think because he wrote the first one for adults and then the next one's for children. But yeah, it just kind of highlights how, how very few authors can do that to keep kind of a consistent yeah. tone throughout. And all of her series tend to be quite loosely connected, like yeah. the Crestomancy books who have recurring characters, most notably the Crestomancy, who's this uh, magical figure. Mm. But there isn't a story arc, and you can read them in any order. And I think in some ways that's good, but perhaps that's one of the reasons why she's not sort of built an audience in the same way, in that you're never left waiting for the next book by anything she she writes, mm-hmm. uh, which is both 
uh, refreshing that they do all stand alone, but you also don't have the satisfaction of having a more developed series like that. Although I guess probably the Dale Mark Quartet's the closest to a worked out sequence. Yeah. So I was quite surprised having you know, the only series of hers that I've read are the Howl's Moving Castle trilogy mm. and the um, Dark Lord of Durkholm duet. I was surprised by just how little relation the subsequent stories have mm-hmm. to the original books. I mean, how the Howl's Moving Castle series, Howl and Sophie do turn up in the sequels and they play quite significant parts, but they're not in terms of page counts, they're hardly in it. Mm. I mean, I think um, House of Many Ways, maybe they rack up a couple of dozen pages. <laughs> but otherwise, it's a completely separate story. But nevertheless, they, they, they're never incidental mm-hmm. to what's actually mm-hmm. happening. They are, they are always crucial. Yeah. And at the risk of spoiling uh, Year of the Griffin and the Dark Lord of Durkholm, uh, Dark Lord of Durkholm sets up around the fringes of its main story, whilst this frantic scramble to set up these tours um, are going on, you hear about this mysterious lost continent across the ocean where all the griffins live. Um, and Dirk has, had, has, has um, bred his griffin children partly with an aim to one day crossing this great ocean and rediscovering this lost continent and these ancient races and reconnecting the two halves of his world and finding out what ancient magic is there. And, he, yeah, and, and someone comes along and says, oh, you know, there's a sequel to this book you're automatically going to think, oh, fantastic, great quest across the sea to the it's land of the Griffins. Year of the Griffins. And it's called the Year of the Griffins. <laughs> and it's his daughter enrolling in university <laughs> at home. As, as, and her life as an undergraduate. I think that one, because that yeah. was the one that actually most reminded me of Harry Potter. Yeah, I can definitely see that, sort of the inept wizard. There's always some mm. of, not teacher who's not that good in yeah. Harry Potter for some reason. And then... Yeah, I mean, I've read both of them. I really enjoy them. I mean, I think Dark Lord Dark is my favourite out of the two. It's sort of comfort reading for me for some reason. <laughs> it, it, it is. My, I mean, they're both my list. I was just dis- I was discussing it with someone online the other day, and she described it as like a hug in book form. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's 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 that should go on the jacket. I yeah. <laughs> in the terms of the House trilogy, she effectively came up with original characters to take centre stage in each of the subsequent books. Mm. In uh, Year of the Griffin, Colette, who's one of Dirk's daughters, one of his Griffin daughters, is a fairly minor character in the first book. I mean, she she has a part to play, but is certainly not centre stage. Um, And she's the main character in the second one, and Diana Jones weaves these original characters around her. And again, Dirk turns up. But then, lo and behold, about halfway through the book, this contingent from this ancient lost continent (laughs) and the land of the Griffins turns up and becomes becomes quite important. But you never actually go there. You never see it. (laughs) Um, But that's... At the same time, that's incredibly refreshing because it's not giving you at all what you expect. I was but quite relieved as well because I thought a book set on the continent of the Griffins would be quite boring. Mm. <laughs> so I'm quite glad she yeah. took that to But, but she, she, she doesn't actually leave you... You don't get to the end of the book without having any of that. There, no. is, there is quite an important dose of that in the middle, mm. but just not administered in the way that you're expecting it to be. Mm. Um, and that, that, that surprised me and it delighted me. It was, it was wonderful. I loved it. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, but going on to favourite books, because you said that Dark Lord of Durkholm yeah. is your favourite one. What's what's everyone else's favourite? Everyone's <laughs> 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 looking at me now. You're keen on fiction. I, would, I actually liked. Yes, I'd, I'd have to say reflections because again, they're just. I don't know whether I'm the wrong age for the fiction or just the wrong target audience in some way. But I really liked the writing about mm. writing. So, yeah, Reflections, definitely worth a read. 
Are you quite keen on the autobiographical? Because the second, your second lease was Fire and Hemlock, mm. which draws a lot on her childhood and there's a lot of autobiographical elements and there are some scenes in that which are absolutely real. And some of the things... I, I didn't like Dark Lord of Durkheim, just it, the whole thing felt far too contrived to me. I couldn't imagine any world which would run around in circles to please some Disney-type um corporate person who wanted them to run in circles. I thought, no, they, I'd just tell them to get lost. But in Fire and Hemlock, there were scenes which absolutely felt, yep, yeah, this could happen, and in the context of the book, it is sort of really happening. Mm-hmm. I did, as a result, though, find it slightly creepy. It was very <laughs> creepy. There were, there were some bits in that, in fact. I submit towards it seemed to fall slightly apart at the end and left me wondering exactly what had gone on and why. Mm-hmm. But uh, some of the scenes from the main character's childhood and that, especially having read Reflections and knowing what her own childhood was like. I find it quite hard to pick out a favourite just because there's so many I like and um, she's so varied. There are certainly ones that I like more than others. Uh, I think The Homeward Bounders is Mm. uh, probably one of my favourites. I just really like the basic idea is that uh, you've got these mysterious beings, uh, they or them, who basically treat everyone's lives in the sort of parallel worlds, including as as um, it's a giant role playing game for them. Uh, but when if you discover what's going on, then you get discarded and you're um, forced to wander the worlds uh, between them. Just keep moving. On forever, basically, um, you become a random element in play, and basically you have this character uh, Jamie, and he meets some of the other homeward bounders, and uh, it's just really interesting and fun and different worlds, and uh, I just really uh, enjoy that story, and it's uh, yeah, it's, it's one of her most poignant as well. I think. Yeah, it's, it's quite, it's got quite a bittersweet ending to it. Yeah, I was about to say I don't want to say too much to not to give anything away but yeah just some of the stuff with the whole theme of hope and how hope can uh both be be a prison as well as a strength is quite interesting and yeah uh it does have that not exactly darker but certainly bittersweet ending see my favorite um one of my favorite books was um again on the darker side of things um i really enjoyed the Delmar Quartet, especially Carson Quidder, mm. which I thought was very refreshing, um, especially after, because I came to it on the back of Hell's Moving Castle, I think, which is a very light, very child-friendly series. It's got some um, big ideas in it, but it's very accessible. And Carton Quidder is a lot more... Um, I dread to say gritty, because it sounds like, you know, what they put on true crime thrillers and like that. But it is a lot more kind of... It's a harsher world that you come to. And she does things like um, kills off what you think is going to be a main character very early in the book. Mm. And after that, it's kind of like, well, anything could happen. Um, so I, I really did love the Dalemark Quartet. Um, besides that, I think... I mean, although which week might become my favourite, which I'm halfway through at the moment. In fact, I'm slightly resentful that I had to stop reading which week in order to do this podcast. Because <laughs> this, is, this is prime reading time that I'm missing here. <laughs> Uh, that's part of the Crestomancy series again, which week. 
Mm. I think um, another one I really like is uh, The Lives of Christopher Chant. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another favourite of mine. Natasha, how about you? Well, I said I'd already like the Dirk Home books, um, but I, yeah, the Crestomancy series just in general, I really enjoy. I mean, the first Darnwyn Jones book I read was Magicians at Caprona, and I think Witch Week was one of the first ones as well. Right. Uh, well I, I did promise we would talk about Darnwyn Jones's childhood and her life, and Claire, you, you brought it up. It has inevitably been quite a big influence uh, on her writing. Uh, so which book did you say was? Fire and Hemlock. Fire and Hemlock. Uh, draws quite heavily on that. Um, but sticking with that house Moving Castle theme, I think the family set up at the beginning of that uh, with Sophie Hatter as the eldest daughter mm. looking after the two younger uh, with a mother who may not necessarily have all their best interests mm. at heart um, certainly uh, draws on her own on her own childhood. Mm. Um, I, th- I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say she was abused, but she was certainly a neglected child, wasn't she? Mm. I think it is quite um, a theme that comes up quite a lot, is that yeah. she's got uh, some quite sharply described dysfunctional families in different ways, mm. and uh, that's quite a common thing in her uh, stories. Yeah. I mean, a long story short, uh, Diana was the eldest of three daughters, and their parents were academics who ended up running uh, what's basically a conference centre uh, for young people and young adults, uh, and they seemed to have no love for or interest in their own children, basically, um, had no idea what, what to do with them, and so effectively banished them to a cold concrete lean-to shed outside the house across a yard, and they were left uh, quite often to feed themselves, to look after themselves from from an incredibly young age, I mean, from the age of about five or six. Um, and Danawyn Jones um, said later in life that were it to happen today, social services would have taken them into care. Um, her father was an in- incredibly mean, tight-fisted man, um, to the extent that uh, he, he starved them of books, of practically everything. Her, the, their clothes were old curtains and coverings from from old furniture that had been thrown out and discards from the local orphanage that that, the the people running the local orphanage thought the the clothes weren't in a fit enough state for the orphans then Diana's parents would go along and pick them up Dickensian is pretty much the word and Diana was left to in sole charge of, of her two younger sisters and had to keep them alive and fed and warm uh, yes, no, her father famously, or infamously, bought them, a, well, not quite a complete set of Arthur Ransom books. It was supposed to be a complete set, but there were two or three books missing, which is why it was discounted. <laughs> <laughs> so it was cut price, and that was the only reason he bought it, um, because the, his, all three of his daughters apparently were clamouring for books, because they absolutely loved to read, but had no books at all in the in the house. When one of the sisters came down with some really serious illness that the mother didn't believe mm. because she didn't believe that all the illnesses were just in their head. Oh yes, yes, no, you would not believe. Yeah, would not give them the yes. time of day. Would not trust mm. them. Would not believe anything that they said. So yes, one of them was seriously ill and was just left to to, to fester. <laughs> um, but no, her father, who was the son of, uh, sounded like quite a hard blind uh, Baptist preacher in the Welsh Valleys, um, bought this. Not quite a complete set of Arthur Ransom books, locked it in the cupboard and dispensed one book every Christmas amongst the three of them um, throughout their childhood. And Diana was in university before they, they got the last book, and, and that was 
that was his idea of generosity. Um, Yes, and her mother seemed to be an incredibly selfish woman who didn't understand, who saw her daughters as rivals, I think, is the way that Diana put it later in life. Um, So this this clearly coloured her view of uh, parental authority and, and adult authority in general. Her teachers at school didn't sound to be much better. Don't question authority, they don't know either. Yeah. Yes, I think it, it also shows what children and possibly most of us would just accept as normal if it's what's going on every day mm-hmm. because yes. they never thought to actually think that they were being abused or neglected. It was just what happened. Yes, there I... seemed to be a, a big acceptance of it. Yeah, so. She did as well write an awful lot in her books about broken families, mm. which mm. I don't know whether many writers at the time did that, but I certainly don't remember many from my childhood who wrote about, you know, single parents and par- parents who don't have their children's best interests mm. at heart uh, and things like that. Well, well, I, apparently there was a glut of this. I mean, this is one of the things that she was trying to write against when she got into the fantasy genre. Um, books that were supposed to be bettering for children, mm. um, in other words, books that specifically addressed a particular social issue, be it racism or poverty or divorce, apparently it was quite a favourite with children's writers. <laughs> uh, they were all, she says, written by teachers, yeah. basically, who wanted to, but who were frustrated like, with their class. Yeah, I, I won't name the books, because um, in case people want to read them, but there are at least two books where the children have parents who turn out to be terrorists or criminals, <laughs> um, which I find oh. quite fascinating. No, she, she was quite adamant that one of her responsibilities as a, as a children's writer was not to um, try and solve people's problems or educate them or try and impose any sort of morality um, on, on her readership. Uh, the, the example she used was, imagine if you as an adult were, were getting divorced and somebody handed you a, a copy of Anna Karenina and said, here, read this, it will really help. <laughs> <laughs> um, she says that no, no no one in their right mind would think of trying to do that no. in adult literature, but it happened and still happens apparently in children's literature all the mm. time. But she does seem to have... Certainly in reflections and some of the essays she puts in there, a great sense of the responsibility of the children's writer because she mentions the fact that some of the things that you might read when you're seven, eight, nine years old will stay with you for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And there there was a massive sense of the burden of responsibility on the writer to actually put things into the child's minds at that point, which are worth staying with them Mm -hmm. and and which deserve to be there. She's very outspoken about those writers she feels are... Uh, being irresponsible mm, in their writing yes, yeah. and perhaps giving children a message that's not helpful mm. or healthy. Well, uh, does she name them? She doesn't name them. Well, she, actually, she named a, no. She does name a couple. Actually, she was on an awards panel apparently for children's mm. literature, and they had to wade through what she calls you know, basically a pile of dross. Um, <laughs> uh, it's the only point at which she actually names specific mm. authors and uh, and and their books. Um, <laughs> but but this does take us. So, so yeah, if if you if you want if you want the dirt. On, on, on terrible children's writers, pick up a copy of Reflections because she, she dishes it. <laughs> but she knew she was dying at that point, so I think <laughs> so the gloves were off. Um, but, but this takes us right back to what, to what Caleb said at the very beginning of the podcast uh, about the fact that Hexwood uh, was, was a book he read at an age at which it left a very big impression. Yeah, I, I'd say that um, she's one of the authors who's had the biggest impression on me and on the kind of thing I like reading and like writing is 
as a writer myself, uh, along with probably C.S. Lewis and uh, Doctor Who. She's one of the other uh, ones who's really been formative just in terms of my writing and my interests. Um, which leads me to, to my last point, because we're going to have to wrap it up. Um, I'm not sure how long we've been going, but I think it's a while. <laughs> Over an hour. Yeah, there you go. Um, and that is, I'd like, if possible, uh, for everyone to name a book, whether it's a Diana Wynne Jones book or not, that they read as a child that has stayed with them or made some impression on them, for better, for better or worse. It's funny because Diana Wynne Jones does, the Tale of Time City does stand out for me at mm. the time as being the time that I realised just how much there was out there in terms of a good story to read because I've always been a lover of a good story mm. into either in books or in films because films mm. tend to be my second love. Um, but other than that, I think there's not many books that I think have changed my view of things apart from I remember reading a passage in Watership Down um, in which the rabbits go to like this sophisticated rabbit warren that's owned by, by people. And one of them's made a mosaic on the wall and they're trying to explain that it's a picture of El Herrera stealing the king's lettuces and these other rabbits who've just come in who are just like proper rabbits can't understand it and they can't understand why stones pushed into soil somehow make El Herrera stealing the king's lettuces, which made me realise just kind of how human a concept it is in terms of art and how um even at a young age because looking at um our son at six weeks old could pick out these abstract blobs of paint on wood as eyes even without the rest of the face around them and just kind of how did you know when he was six weeks old because he couldn't tell you oh he loved face he loved eyes Mm. okay um yeah absolutely loved faces when he was little he had a big mike wazowski toy that he used to stick his thumb in his eye the whole time (laughs) Um, I but... don't want to go anywhere near your house. <laughs> <laughs> He's got past that bit. Um, so yeah, that's one thing that I remember having a big impact. Mm. Oh, mine, mine's a little, little low brow than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the first book I can remember staying with me um, of a series of books was The Faraway Tree by Enid Blyton. And I was very young um, and I remember my mother reading them to me and I absolutely love them and, and haven't haven't gone back to them since I'm almost afraid to because I don't think they'll, they'll I really be necessary like yeah, I, I, I will have to wonder I'll, I'll, when, when Aurelian is old enough I, I when our boy is old enough I'll, I'll read them to him and I think that that will justify it <laughs> but it's the first time I remember I think it's the first time I remember encountering fantasy in literature and just realising Again, the sort of things that were, that were possible. Yeah, and, and it's just child's wish fulfilment, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, and realising that someone's... Sweets that grow bigger when you eat them. <laughs> and, and someone has has has, has got this. The, 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 the stories are out there and that you can go and imagine these fantastic places and encounter mm. these characters. Um, and so I, I think um, Enid Blyton, even though I don't think I've ever read anything else by Enid Blyton, has left yeah a, a huge lasting impression but more recently and more concretely than that um it's terence dix and the target novelizations of the old classic doctor who stories <laughs> uh, which i used to absolutely oh, devour yeah. uh, between the ages of about seven and fourteen um because our mm. local library used to get them in all the time yeah and they were still being published then as well so whenever i got book tokens i'd go to w.a smith and 
and uh, and spend them on on target organisations. And it's, it's it's a similar thing, just just real proper adventure um, in book form, and the realisation that uh, that something I was used to watching on television could actually translate so wonderfully well to the page, and, and I, I didn't miss the pictures at all. Um, and just the name Terence Dix on the front of like 90% of them. I think that was the realisation then that, that somebody actually was paid to sit down and write these things. <laughs> Authors are important. Yes, well, <laughs> well, yes. And, uh, uh, stealing another quote from Diana Wynne Jones, I think she realised um, that up until a certain age, she thought that books were just some things that were just produced by a machine in a back room at Woolworths, like any other produce, and they were put out on a shelf, and that was it. And she, it, it was a while before she realised that people actually had to sit down and come up with the ideas and write them and make them work. Mm. Um, I think just seeing the name Terence Dix over and over and over again on all these different books made me realise this bloke Terence Dix has a good job. <laughs> 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 mm. Anyone else? No, I'm trying to narrow it down to one book, but I, I just can't. So, I mean, I grew up with a sort of healthy diet, feeding of Brighton, I guess. Mm. Mostly Famous Five and then Mallory Towers and St. Clair's, you know, girls' boarding school stories. No wonder I liked, you know, The Worst Witch and Harry Potter and that sort of thing. I think that had a real big impact on me. Um, and it's just sort of random scenes from books that stay with me. I think it's one of the Famous Five books where a girl has to go into hiding with the famous five and to do that they cut off her hair and change her name and pretend she's a boy and <laughs> I don't know that stuck with me and also descriptions of food it's like oh, oh she loved food didn't she yeah. ginger beer and <laughs> it's like I don't think I would ever eat like a tongue sandwich but she just describes all this food and I think that's something that I've carried with me if I attempt to write my own fiction it's realistic details like what people are eating and that sort of thing that's really stuck with me. I do think sometimes she invented the Midnight Feast. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I was little reading these stories about the boarding school and the Midnight Feast and uh, waiting up. We had these bags of sweets that my mum gave us, me and my my friend, and we'd wait up and I think we'd give in and eat them about half past ten and then fall asleep (laughs) because midnight is way too late for a young child. I think I could probably write my autobiography in terms in terms of books that made an impact on me <laughs> at different times. Um, yeah, in a bite and definitely, I went through a big um, in a bite and phase. I tried to set up my own secret seven club to <laughs> solve mysteries with friends from school. That mean you had to find six people as goofy as you. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I quite got to seven, and I was really. I take it as siblings were roped into this. <laughs> Because someone said, I, I don't know who did it, I don't know whether it was, uh, but someone sent a uh, message to us cut out of newspaper for the letters. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know whether it was one of the group just trying to create a mystery or perhaps one of their parents or something. But I was really disappointed because I was like, oh, where, where's the envelope? And uh, was there a postmark? And they'd thrown it away. It's like, oh, all my clues are being... <laughs> But, um, yeah, um, uh, Doctor Who, the novelizations, And I came to Doctor Who through the books because it was off television by the time I was old enough to take an interest in it. I sort of just missed the tail end of the original run. Uh, so my experience of Doctor Who was primarily literary, but also um, 
The Hobbit had a really big impact on me. I remember reading that for the first time when I was around seven, six or seven. And uh, I remember that being a lot longer than any book I'd read before then. It had mostly been the kind of Enid Light and stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, this is uh, so much better and longer and more interesting than the stuff I've read before, the much more basic children's books. And... Perilandra by C.S. Lewis, that had a really big impact on me. Just, I think it was just because the writing was that much more richer, more elusive in that. And um, also just some of the vistas it opened up in terms of ideas and philosophy and uh, spirituality, some of the stuff that's really fascinating that he captures in that and that again it's one of those books that made my brain explode <laughs> there's a chase scene on giant fish at the end yes <laughs> <laughs> that too <laughs> claire anything stand out for you at all um i think i was doubly fortunate in that first of all my parents had a massive book lecture my mother would read anything and everything and there was absolutely no distinction between children's books and adult, and they really didn't keep much of an eye on what we were reading. <laughs> Secondly, that as good Baptist South Wales people, they were dead against fantasy, and so the one thing they really disapproved of and stopped us reading was fantasy, which uh, made me want to read it. You do have that in common with Diana and Jones, yeah. who also banned from fantasy. My discovery of fantasy, which is a little more highbrow than you'd like, I'm afraid. There was a book of children's Greek myths I found from the Newport Mainly Branch mm. Library, <laughs> which probably had about 100 books in it altogether. It's a tiny little place. And I absolutely fell in love with this book. Uh, it not only had all of the great the archetypal mm. Greek myths, it also had this really cool picture of Perseus in there. <laughs> I would just get, I would take the book back and then take it straight back out again every week until I think my mother and the librarian cottoned on. I wasn't allowed to have it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that that was my first uh, glimpse of that there was something beyond the sort of adult thrillers and Enid Blyton and and stuff that filled the house. Mm. Oh yeah, I, re- I really loved getting into the various myths of different sorts. And one of the things that could be a whole other podcast would be how Diana Wynne Jones uses some of the myths, like mm. um, different ones like Norse mythology and stuff. In, um, we haven't even covered books. Roald Dahl. Yeah, we <laughs> so haven't, many exciting We haven't even moment. mentioned the fact that she was taught at university by C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's that's a whole other so podcast much. in itself. We, we are going to have to wrap it up here, I'm afraid, because we, we've, we've gone on long enough. But, uh, so if you've endured this long, thank you very much indeed. Um, uh, thank you for sticking with us. And if you're a Diamond Jones fan yourself, I assume you must be if you got to this stage, um, <laughs> then do let us know what your favourite books are and uh, what you think of our opinions, uh, whether you agree or not. And if you're not a Diamond Jones fan by any chance, then do go out and uh, pick up one of our recommendations. We'll guarantee that you're in for a treat. Well, Claire doesn't guarantee it at all, but uh, <laughs> the rest of us do. <laughs> so four-fifths of us guarantee that you're in for a treat. In the meantime, it just remains for me to uh, thank everyone for coming along uh, on, a, on a cold and blustering night and uh, for, for talking about uh, our favourite books for so long. Feel free to get in touch with us uh, by email, impossiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can join us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash impossiblepodcasts. We're on Twitter at impossiblepod. And by the time you listen to this, we will have a Goodreads group up and running as well. We will include a link in the show notes to that. Um, but until next time, we will be back... Uh, with 
either another author interview or another roundtable discussion. We're not sure which yet. Um, but until then, thank you for joining us. Take care. <laughs>